This is 35 West, a podcast about politics and policy of the 35 countries in the Western Hemisphere. I'm Richard Miles, Senior Associate of the Americas Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Professional Mexican, but are we ready? I don't think. Reform trends in Argentina. And that's what happened. Role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. In this podcast series, we'll discuss some of the biggest issues affecting countries in our own backyard. Brazil has lots of everything, including oil, natural gas, and electricity. But getting all of that stuff out of the ground or across the country remain big problems. Will the Bolsonaro administration succeed in fixing these problems, and if so, how? I'm your host, Richard Miles, and my returning guest today is energy expert Lisa Vasidi from the Inter-American Dialogue here in Washington, D.C. Welcome back to the show, Lisa. Thank you. Glad to be back. Before we get into energy, maybe let's talk a little bit about Bolsonaro's overall performance in Brazil in his first six months in office. And it's, it's been kind of rough in terms of the percentage of Brazilians, for instance, rating his administration's performance as good, has fallen to 32% from 49%. And those who think it's awful has gone up from 11% to 32%. So a number of reasons here, scandal, corruption, protests. So is there a political environment, do you think, in Brazil that will enable something as big as energy reforms? Well, I think, you know, most most people are more concerned with the economy and with corruption and other issues. But the energy sector is really important for Brazil. I mean, it's the ninth largest producer in the world, the largest in, in Latin America, and, and seeing big growth. It's actually seeing the second largest growth of any country this year, of any non-OPEC country after the United States. But I think for the most part, the constraints to increasing oil production have already been dealt with. So there was a reform passed under under the Temer government that allowed other companies besides Petrobras to operate in the pre-salt. There were some some loosening of local content rules, setting regular bid rounds. And so, you know, I think oil production is really going to take off. And that will, I think, ultimately benefit the government. But the issues that they're trying to address right now in energy are really more domestic issues. There's a big agenda that they have, and, and they have some really important priorities. One of them is ensuring Petrobras's financial future is stable. And so previously, Petrobras had taken on a huge amount of debt, had lost its investment grade, had become the most indebted oil company in the world. And now there's a big plan to sell off some of its non-core assets, get out of, of other businesses besides exploration and production, and divest $35 billion over five years. And the other priority that's tied to that is the ability to limit the monopoly of state companies in the energy sector. So Petrobras was involved in refining gasoline stations, pipelines. And so if Petrobras is going to sort of step away from this, then there's going to need to be reforms in order to allow the private sector to, to step in. So that's that's kind of what the key discussion is right now in, in Brazil's energy sector. So as you said, the good news is that crude oil production is up significantly. But there, there are a number of things that are, are really holding it back that in theory sound simple to do, but I, I know none of this is simple to do. Like, for instance, the price of natural gas in Brazil is multiples of what it is in, in other countries, especially the United States. And then access to those natural gas pipelines is, I guess, restricted by, by Petrobras, the state company. How easy is it going to be for those, I guess, the low-hanging fruit, in other words, to, to somehow get that price I assume it's an artificial price, right, of the natural gas and then access to the pipelines. 
Is that something that Bolsonaro and his party can just push through Congress and get it done and six months later, uh, you know, you see, or is it more complicated than that? Well, I think as is often the case, the executive or the president himself can do a number of things, but if he doesn't do it through Congress and put it at, and make it a law, it's not going to be as permanent. So the natural gas reform is really important in order to bring down prices, as you mentioned, both for industrial use of natural gas and to bring down electricity costs. And creating open access to the pipelines is key to that. And it's also an important part of, of oil and gas exploration and production because the pre-salt has a large share of associated natural gas. And if you don't bring it to the Brazilian market, you have to flare it, burn it off, which is really bad for the environment, and you lose the gas. So they want to be able to use it for the domestic market. And so if you have this, if you have this reform, other producers can sell and to other companies besides Petrobras. They're not so dependent on Petrobras. The government, right now, Bolsonaro is trying to do this on his own through presidential decree. But that doesn't give such a long-term horizon. It's also being discussed in Congress. If they can approve it in Congress, then companies will have a really long-term horizon for knowing you know, that they'll have free access to pipelines for the gas. So that's really important. And for those of our listeners who are not energy experts, uh, pre-salt, of course, is the, the field that Brazil um, has, or it's off the coast, right? It's, it's a whole area offshore, off of uh, Rio and Sao Paulo states, with huge, huge reserves, you know, one of the largest oil regions, because it's more, you know, it's numerous fields. And that's uh, one what of the largest has people excited about Brazil's energy potentials, that particular field, right? Yes, or, and that's really where all the production growth is coming from, from the pre-salt. And this is, a, again, for, for those not familiar with the energy market, I, I think the huge revolution you could argue in the last, say, five, 10 years is the growth of natural gas, particularly shale, that has lowered prices in the United States, lowered prices or access, particularly in Mexico, which is now very dependent on U.S. natural gas. So this is kind of a big deal, right, in, in terms of an ability of a country's economy to sort of be remain competitive is this uh, benefiting from the lower energy prices. What do you think is going to happen to Brazil if it can't get these reforms through? Uh, and, you know, not just the natural gas, but there are other ones that, that you've discussed previously on sort of electricity distribution and all sorts of things that need to be fixed. How much is that holding back Brazil's economy. Let me rephrase that. How much would it hold it back if those reforms don't get through? Well, I mean, I, I think it's it's been going on for a long time. People are used to the high prices. But if they could lower the prices, it could unlock, unlock more economic growth. So the government projections are that it could lower natural gas prices by 40% over two years, and it could add 8.4% to GDP. You know, that may be overly optimistic, but that's that's a huge gain. And it's not just in the gas sector. There are also important changes that need to happen in downstream. So that's that includes refining and gasoline stations, where you also have this, because Petrobras has a monopoly, they have 98% of refining capacities controlled by Petrobras. They want to sell eight refineries and lower that to 50%. Because they have almost a monopoly, they can also control prices. So historically, Petrobras has always set fuel prices in Brazil, gasoline and diesel, you know, the price at the pump. And this is a problem because the government can put pressure on Petrobras and force them to lower the price and sell at a loss. And that's one of the reasons why they became so indebted in a couple of years ago. And so if you can reduce that monopoly, allow other companies to get in, you can then have the government set prices to global prices 
And that way you don't have to worry about this issue of companies having to subsidize the price. But there's still some fear that that issue will come back because earlier this year, Bolsonaro, the CEO of Petrobras, announced an increase in diesel prices, and he actually called the CEO and asked him not to do it. Bolsonaro called the CEO. Yes, this spring. And so that that came out, and he eventually walked it back. But there was a lot of fear. And and this was, Lisa, just clarified, this was because the the hike in diesel affected the truckers, right? And it caused protests and so on. So under Temer, there was a huge trucker strike when diesel prices went up. And, you know, the country really came to a standstill because all of the the transport, they don't have a lot of rail. It really depends on trucks. And they've gotten used to this cheap subsidized fuel, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, international oil prices can go up or down a lot. And if if local prices are tied to that, you see fluctuations just like you do in the United States. But that's politically very painful. And so now, you know, there is some concern and it's going to be more difficult now for Petrobras to sell those refineries when potential buyers are concerned that they're going to face those price freezes. One more question on Brazil and then let's move on to some other countries in the region. Is there any evidence that foreign direct investment is hesitant about getting into Brazil precisely because they're not seeing a drop in energy costs? You know, I mean, a factory that's energy intensive, let's, you know, a car factory or airplane factory that they wouldn't go to Brazil because like, hey, we could put our company in Mexico or somewhere else where the entry prices are a lot lower. Is there any evidence that that has happened yet or is happening? Well, I think there are a lot of constraints to investing in Brazil. I mean, besides there's high prices, but there's also a lot of local content requirements, which can be a big burden. You know, it's a very kind of isolated economy. So I think while in the energy sector and oil exploration and production, it's now very attractive. You still have, you know, a lot of constraints to other segments of the economy and and high natural gas prices are, are one of a number of constraints. Okay, let's move on to Mexico, another big country, an energy producer in the hemisphere and one in which has a close relationship with the United States, among other things, energy. And give us an update on how you think Lopez Obrador government is doing on energy policy. I mean, we knew when he came in, he announced a few things. He was going to build a new refinery at great cost, even though a lot of folks didn't think Mexico needs a new refinery. And then the other thing is some sort of reform or autonomy or some different status for Pemex. But I think when he came in office, people weren't clear what that meant. We've now had Lopez Obrador, what, uh, something like seven, eight months now in office. How has he done on energy? How is the market reacting? What are what are some of the concerns or you know victories on that front? Well, I mean, I'm really seeing deep pessimism from markets. You know, looking at always energy. welcome on the show. By the way, we <laughs> we do pessimism better than anybody. Go ahead. <laughs> I mean, it's just been there are so many reasons for that. I mean, it's just been a series of things. Most recently, there's the CFE, the state utility has said that they want to take some companies to arbitration over a pipeline contract, an existing pipeline contract, which is there, there are two companies, TransCanada and Ianova, that are, are building a pipeline, which they weren't able to finish one piece of it on time because of local community opposition. And under the contract that they have, the CFE is still responsible for those payments because they can declare force majeure. And AMLO didn't like that they had to make payments even when the pipeline wasn't built on time. And so he said he wanted to take them to arbitration. And this is really significant because it's an existing contract. Because up until now, we had seen auctions for exploration and production contracts frozen, even auctions for renewable contracts frozen. 
But that know, was for all stuff that was going to occur. But this is all future. Right this is all, future, right? all stuff that would have happened in the future. This is one of the few examples and the only one in the energy sector where he's wanting to change an existing contract. And that's really kind of crossing a line where you no longer have contract sanctity. You know, that's really a big deal. And that's just the most recent thing. And it's a significant departure from your original rationale. Because when I remember when Lopez Obrador came in and said he was they're going to review the contracts. And specifically, it was for evidence of corruption. So it wasn't the terms per se of the contract that they're going to change. This is, you know, pre- during the campaign, they're simply going to make sure that no Mexican officials got paid on the table, that sort of thing. So this is now all of a sudden it's like, well, we don't like the terms, which, as you said, is a much bigger deal. Yeah. And they didn't end up making any changes, you know, when they talked about reviewing the contract for corruption. Did, did they, they find any instances of corrupt payments or bribery in any of those existing no, contracts? No, nothing, nothing really changed. You know, yeah. mostly what, they, what they've said is that there wasn't sufficient investment, there wasn't sufficient production, things weren't moving quickly enough. But there was not really cases of corruption where they had to annul contracts. So coming after the New Mexican government canceled the new airport contract, which has got a lot of attention, I imagine now investors are, particularly in the energy sector, are very wary about what comes next. Right. And, And also, I mean, to your question about Pemex, Pemex is on the verge of losing investment grade. It's actually surpassed Petrobras, and now Pemex is the most indebted oil company in the world. And it was already downgraded by one of the three rating agencies. If it gets downgraded by another one, which I think is likely to happen, then it will lose a lot of investors that hold its bonds will have to sell and, and, you know, it'll have to pay higher interest rates. So it would be a real problem. And it's all because, largely because of this refinery that they want to build, which, you know, the rating agencies just think doesn't make sense. It's too expensive. It's like an $8 billion um, project, something like they that. They say it will be $8 yeah. billion. Dollars. It will probably be more. Be more yeah. And it's not really justified when they, I think, should be moving more in the direction of Petrobras, where they're focusing on exploration and production. That's the most profitable part mm-hmm. of the business. Other segments of the energy business are not as profitable. So if you want to turn the company around financially, that's what you need and to focus on. And especially for Mexico, which is essentially right next door to all the refining capacity in the in the southeastern United States, right? It doesn't really make any sense to Right. They can just import kind of from the U.S. In, exactly, yeah. Well, that, that's got to be a plaque that no company wants on its wall, most indebted oil company in the world. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's move on to Venezuela. We've talked a lot about Venezuela on the show, uh, mostly, again, in pessimistic terms because <laughs> things keep getting worse. Let's focus on energy. Um, energy production has been declining for a long time in Venezuela. This is not recent. And a lot of that is not just mismanagement. It's lack of investment, right? They just simply haven't been investing where they have. What is Venezuelan energy production right now? I, I guess pick any reference point, for, you know, a year ago, five years ago. And then what has been the impact on world markets, particularly in, in the United States, uh, because there is this relationship, a refining relationship, right, with Venezuelan crude. Is that completely almost dead now, or are we still seeing significant activity? Well, as you said, production's been declining for a long time, but it's declined much faster since sanctions have been in place. So the latest figures that are being cited by most places are around 700,000 barrels a day, whereas at the beginning of the year, it was around 1.2 million barrels a day. So, I mean- So that's just in one year. That's just since, basically since the oil sanctions wow. were announced. Okay. So that's almost, what, a 50% drop in, in one year. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge drop and it will continue to drop further. They've really been affected by the sanctions. You know, it's harder for them to find buyers. It's harder for them to import light oil that they can use for blending and injection in order to actually produce their own heavy crude. It's made things very difficult. 
in terms of its impact, you know, globally, of course, it is a big supply disruption, so it does affect markets. But many people are actually surprised that oil prices haven't increased more than they have. Because anytime you know you have major supply disruptions in the world, of course you'd expect the price to to spike. And it's not just Venezuela. We have sanctions. U.S. has sanctions against three of the largest oil producers in the world: Venezuela, Iran, and Russia. Iran has lost about a million barrels a day just since the Trump administration, you know, reenacted the sanctions against them. And yet, you know, the price is is not compared to over the last decade or so. It really hasn't spiked. And I think that's partly because the demand picture is more negative, you know, slowdown in China, the U.S.-China trade war, you know, that's weighing on demand. And then at the same time, you always have the U.S. shale that's able to ramp up production and fill the gap. Okay, that gives us an opportunity to end the show on an optimistic, positive note here. Let's <laughs> let's back up and talk about some of the macro trends that you think we may be seeing over, say, the next decade. And and the the big news, of course, in the last decade is has been the shale revolution, particularly in Canada and the United States. What are the trend lines, in your view, that we're going to see maybe in the next decade? I mean, there's a lot of optimism now about some renewables, right? That particularly on solar, prices are getting cheaper in terms of a lot of the technology involved. Are we going to continue to see more of the same in terms of shale affecting prices? Are renewables going to come up? What can we say about the next 10 years? And if you could give me specific stock pick recommendations, please, <laughs> I'd very much appreciate that. And <laughs> Go ahead. Well, I mean, I think definitely there's, you know, there's really a revolution in renewables as well. In the renewable energy auctions that have been held in many Latin American countries, we've seen record low prices, especially for wind and solar. Those are the two technologies of renewables that have really taken off and that can really beat even, you know, fossil fuels, natural gas, coal in in these auctions. So I think we're going to see a, a big growth in that area. But that's really for electricity generation. And even so, it will still need, until we see a breakthrough in energy storage, it still needs to, to be back up by a firm energy source like natural gas or large hydroelectric dams. But I think the share will, will increase hugely over the next 10 years. Uh, but that doesn't really deal with oil for the transportation sector. So, you know, I think we're still going to see an increase in oil production. And I think the countries that are the major producers within Latin America, it, it's really changing. So I think Brazil is going to become a major oil producer. They have huge potential that they're actually realizing. I think unconventionals, the question is, will it really boom outside of the U.S.? I think Argentina, we really could see a big increase there. And by unconventionals, um, you're talking about, uh, about nuclear or shale? Got shale, okay. yeah. You know, Argentina has huge potential. Mexico does as well, but AMLO has said that he's against fracking, and, and so I guess for now that won't happen. So, you know, Mexico and Venezuela are on the decline, and until we really see signs that there's potential for turnaround, we just have to assume it's going to continue to decline. Right. Okay, I want to conclude actually with a kind of a wonky question, but, you know, it's late summer, so we can ask a wonky question on a wonky podcast. If if I understand correctly, on uh, particularly on wind, that the problem in the United States right now is not so much generation, it's, it's transmission, right? I mean, you've got, say, a lot of wind producing or a lot of wind generation in the western states, the United States, or some of the corridors in the Midwest. The problem is getting that power to the actual grids that need it, like uh, mostly on the coasts. If that's a problem for the United States, 
that has fairly vibrant capital markets and you know policymakers that want to make this happen. What is the hope or the chance that other countries are going to overcome this transmission problem, which is a different one, right? Because that involves rights away and big power lines all over the country, which is in and of itself a very challenging problem. So apart, completely apart from production, it's how do you get that energy to other parts of the country? Yeah, that that is a big challenge in Latin America as well, especially because you know, you have a lot of solar in desert regions, which is very far from where people actually live, you know, like in Mexico, in, in Chile, in Argentina. Wind potential also tends to be far away from where most people live. And you so, only have limited storage potential, right, in terms of being able to capture and store that. You still have to get it someplace, right? Yeah, there's a, that's a sort of a technological barrier that, that hasn't really been resolved. We don't have enough storage to hold electricity for a very long time at a reasonable cost. So you have to build these transmission lines. So that's that's one of the challenges. I mean, I think it's something that can be overcome. And yes, you also have the not in my backyard phenomenon, just like you do with oil pipelines, you have it with transmission lines. But I think those are those are issues that between technological developments and policy, those are issues that can be overcome. That's what I think. Okay, so we're going to bottle that optimism, keep it keep it there <laughs> before we talk about anything more depressing. <laughs> Lisa, thank you very much for coming back on the show. Um, always, uh, for me, fascinating to talk about energy. I think it's one of those things that for most people, maybe they don't see the importance of it in political terms, but I think ultimately it affects everything you know, downstream. Thanks very much for being uh, back on 35 West. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to 35 West. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and visit the America's Program page at CSIS.org.